Okay, everybody, if you want to find a seat, we're going to go ahead and get started because today is the final day in our long series on the book of Exodus. Um, I'm totally sad to see it go. I had a hard time writing the sermon. I was still writing it like a few minutes before service because clearly I don't want this to end. There's some like unconscious thing. It's like, let's just keep going. But um, we've encountered a lot over the last 14, this is the 15th week. And these stories about the birth of Israel as a nation, their liberation from Egypt, the giving of the law and the tabernacle, down to the golden calf, and the aftermath of that ends up in kind of the resolution of this chapter in the story of God. And one of the the convictions that we've witnessed here in the Old Testament is that everyone seems to live with this longing for God, a desire to, to see God, And know that God is real. It's kind of an objectively irrefutable claim. Humans long for some kind of connection with God, whether they realize it or not. That can make them safe or bring prosperity or bring order to the chaos or some kind of um, abundance to, to the place of barrenness. People have always looked to God or the gods when that was the thing, hoping that a connection to the divine might bring some kind of peace. And one of the themes of the Exodus story is that this kind of connection is not only possible, it's actually what God wants. But there is this problem, this complicating factor. And the problem is there is this infinite difference between God's way of being and the human way of being. They just couldn't be further apart. And and so that makes a connection with God kind of tricky. God's just a different category of being. Um, the theologian Karl Barth, he said it was God, God is wholly other, just exists in a way that's different than anything else that exists and, and hence is kind of beyond our ability to comprehend. Um, one of the Hebrew words they use to describe this is the word kavod. It means glory, but it's derived from the word for weightiness or heaviness. So God is glorious in that God is a heavyweight in social and moral and theological goodness, but also just in, in frightening potency and, and power. Kavod means glorious as in worthy of honor and respect and reverence, but also kind of scary like and intimidating. And so God's glory, kavod, is both a reason to love God and chase after God, but also a reason to hide from God, a kind of barrier that separates humanity from God. Because the weight of God's character can just be too heavy, too weighty for us to take on. In fact, if we ever encountered God's glory, like the, the full dose of it, it would just overwhelm our humanity. Anytime, really, something finite comes in contact with with the infinite, the finite becomes overwhelmed and and dissipated. Think of like a drop of water that falls into a vast ocean. When when the finite touches the infinite, it's consumed. And and this is part of why in Exodus we have all these layers of protection around, say, the tabernacle and, and the veil separating the people from God, the presence of God in the Holy of Holies, because the glory of God is nothing to mess around with. And so the only way for like, finite creatures to know an infinite God is obliquely through glimpses and glances and intuitions and hopes spread out usually over a really long period of time. Or you could say that 
we know God by faith, not by sight. If we ever knew God by sight, it would, it would wreck us. It would wreck our human freedom. Like the glory of God would just overwhelm us and almost turn us into robots. We wouldn't be free to love God anymore. We would just have to love God, which is not what God wants. God wants us to freely love and freely follow, willingly, and to become, through that, human as human was meant to be. And in that, bearing the image of God, the image of the invisible God. And so, so this is a problem for humanity as a whole and for all of us. We have this longing to see God and know God, and yet there's this disconnection between God's way of being and our way of being, and God's kavod, God's glory, has this enticing thing, but also this potential to just undo us, completely overwhelm us, and turn us into like little sycophantic robots. And so part of God's agenda in this long Exodus story is to teach the children of Israel how to approach God and relate to God without being destroyed by something that's just so infinite and glorious. Does that make sense? You with me? Okay. So how this happened was God would draw near to them and reveal some little part of God's way of being to them. But then at the same time, God would create these layers of separation to protect them. So God would reveal God's self to them, a little bit of God's glory, but then would give them a way to organize their common life that would help them to perceive God's character and goodness in sort of symbolic ways so that they could learn to recognize when God was, was speaking to them and leading them and when they were off track. So, so God drew near to the people through all kinds of things like miracles and plagues, through contact with Moses. Um, God gave them then structures of how to structure their society and things like um, the law, the tabernacle, the covenant, which immediately, of course, broke down because of this problem, this distance between humanity and God. And then after the golden calf, things were looking pretty bad. This is where we left off last week. Things were rough for the children of Israel. And God said to Moses, go up into the promised land, right? And I'll send an angel before you to clear out all the ites, all the tribes of ites. And then, then God says, but I will not go up among you, for you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way, which is just straight funny, right? He's like, you need to get going, but I'm, I'm going to drive my own car because um, I'm feeling sort of homicidal toward you guys at this moment. Um, God calls them a stiff-necked people. The phrase comes from agriculture, from animals that are stubborn, that just go straight ahead and don't look around for guidance. They're stiff-necked. And this sort of freaks everyone out. They get really anxious. And so it says Moses took this thing called the tent of meeting, which the scholars think this is a temporary tabernacle until the real one can be built, just a tent of meeting. He pitches this thing uh, outside the camp, and the pillar of cloud comes and rests over it. This is symbolic of the presence of God. And it says anyone seeking the Lord could go out into the tent of meeting that was outside the camp. So, so God is making God's self available to an anxious people. And God's presence begins to comfort them. It says they could see when Moses would go in, they could see the, the tent of meeting with the cloud resting over it, and they would actually worship God in gratitude because they knew they weren't alone. And apparently, God kept telling Moses, you got to move the people toward the promised land. And Moses said to the Lord, 
See, you have been saying to me, bring this people up, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Like how many of these guys actually going to follow me as I'm trying to lead them? But you said, I know you by name, and also you have found favor in my sight. Now if I have found favor in your sight, show me your way that I may know you, that I may continue to find favor in your sight and see that this nation is your people. So Moses is actually being very careful here. He's saying, I'll follow you, but I don't know how many of these guys are going to follow me. And, and so he makes this request of God, the first of two. This one is, show me your way that I may know you, which is an interesting thing to ask, um, that I may know you. We, we've run into this word a bunch, the Hebrew word yada, to know, like the Yiddish yada, yada, yada. I know, I know, I know, right? And, and this kind of knowing is not just knowing facts. It's experiential knowledge. It's, in fact, it's often, yada can be a, a euphemism for sex in the scriptures. It implies this relationship of care and concern. If you remember all the way back to week one of Exodus, the whole problem is the Pharaoh doesn't yada Joseph in, in the, the story of how Israel saved Egypt. But here Moses says he wants to yada, wants to know God. And notice what he asks in particular. He says, show me your way that I may know you. It's interesting, you know, in, in the pre-enlightenment world, we, we come after rationalism, but in the pre-enlightenment world, knowledge was not just merely conceptual and rational, like about knowing facts. Knowledge involved a shared way, a path, a way. To know someone, you had to join in their life, in their way of being, not just learn facts about them, but you, you learn their way of being through a common experience. And of course, this is tough when it comes to knowing God because getting too close to God can destroy us. You bump up against that, that limit, that problem. And so God has to be encountered by what we sometimes call faith. Um, God can't be seen with eyes. God has to be seen. Be seen we, we sometimes say things like with the eyes of faith. Not faith like just I have faith like I believe um, certain truth claims from the Bible are about God, but faith as in faithing, walking in faith, moving through the world in a particular way that is faithful. And God, God can be only known in, in this way by those who learn to walk by faith, which means that even as we get to, to know God, it's, it's by faith, so there's a sense in which God always remains a mystery. Anybody feel that? God just always remains this mystery. Not a mystery as in completely unknowable, but a mystery as in completely um, endlessly knowable, like layers and layers of inexhaustible knowing, infinite layers of knowing. And, and, and this is symbolized, of course, in the book of Exodus by the cloud, the pillar of cloud. God is always shrouded in this thick cloud, always kind of partly obscured. The Christian tradition calls this the great cloud of unknowing. This is saying that our normal senses, our normal way of knowing in our environment doesn't really work when you buddy up to God. It, it, you get in this fog because it's overwhelming. It's too much for us. Our normal way of knowing doesn't really help in the cloud of unknowing. And, and the, the idea is if we can move toward this cloud and even in that kind of fog, begin to discern 
um, God, see the glory of God shrouded in, in the mystery. We might actually be able to see the glory of God reflected to us in other human beings and in the world. That in learning to know and love God, even in the, the, the cloud, we might actually learn to know and love one another. But at this point in the story of God, this is all brand new for Moses and the children of Israel and even for God. They're, they're trying to find a, a way to relate that will let the children of Israel get to know God um, without being destroyed and, and become the kind of people who can actually discern God's presence and guidance and respond in faith and to do this without God overwhelming them. And this, this is why Moses says, show me your way that I may know you. Because the truth of God isn't something you write down on a piece of paper. It goes way beyond facts and, and concepts and beliefs because it's connected to God's very being. And yet God's way of being um, is discernible. But at the same time, too glorious, right? It's heavy, it's weighty, it's even fearful to us. And so God can't just jump out from behind the bushes and, and yell boo to Moses, right? He, if, go, if Moses is going to know God, God has to reveal God'self in ways um, that he can handle. In, in actually a way, God's way of being in the world. God has to do this slowly and gently with a fragile people, inviting Moses to actually join in God's way of being until he kind of becomes transformed into the, into the type of person who can see God when God shows up. He can discern God in the glimpses and glances and intuitions and hopes about God that, that we glimpse along this path that come on the way of faith. So, so God, once Moses says this, God immediately affirms it. The Lord said, I will go in the lead, and I will lighten your burden. And Moses fires right back at God, making sure it's not like a, a trick or something. Moses said to him, unless you go in the lead, do not make us leave this place. For um, how shall it be known that your people have gained your favor unless you go with us, so that we may be distinguished, your people and I, from every people on the face of the earth. And the Lord said to Moses, I will do this thing that you have asked. For you have truly gained my favor, and I have singled you out by name. And then having received God's kind of affirmative response here to his first request, Moses keeps going, kind of goes out on a limb here, sort of blurts out the question that you sort of think he was probably wanting to ask from day one. He, Moses said, show me your glory, Kavod. He wants to see God with his own two eyes, not just with the eyes of faith, but with physical eyes, which we know is impossible. And then God answers. It says, um, he answered, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Not, not his glory, his goodness, it says. And I will proclaim before you the name Lord. That is Hashem. It's a, it, it's a stand in for Yahweh, the name Yahweh. And the grace that I grant and the compassion that I show. But he said, you cannot see my face for man may not see me and live. And the Lord said, see there is a place near me. Station yourself on the rock and as my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and shield you with my hand until I have passed by. 
Then I will take my hand away and you will see my back. But my face must not be seen. It sort of fits the pattern that we've been seeing with Moses and with God in Exodus. God's found someone who's trying to be faithful. So God draws near to share time and space and, and even words with him. But also, also God puts up barriers to protect him. He, so he's not overwhelmed by the glory of God. So God puts Moses in this cave, shielding him from God's glory. And then he says this peculiar thing. Then I will take my hand away and you will see my back. And there's, I mean, barrels of ink have been spilled spill about what this, this thing means. Most of the rabbis um, all agree, at least on this much, um, which is um, the back of something is what you see as you follow it. You see God leading, right? In other words, you won't see my face. You'll see me leading, though, and, and you'll be able to follow me. And you'll always be able to follow me. You'll always be able to see my back and know that I'm walking before you. I'm, I'm leading you. And if you follow me, you will see kind of a, a trail of my glory where, where I have been in all kinds of things that you encounter. You'll see the divine everywhere. And this is sort of how chapter 33 draws to a close. And then chapter 34 begins with God telling Moses some logistical things, and it's almost easy to overlook, but what he says is, go get two more tablets, which is, to us, we're like, okay, but it's, a, it's like a mic drop moment in the story. Go get two more tablets. He's basically saying, I'm not done with you guys. We'll do this as many times as it takes. Go get two more. I'll write the Ten Commandments down again. We're going to renew this covenant because you and I, we're not done here. And he tells him to go on top of Mount Sinai and to come alone. And then it says, the Lord, Hashem, came down in a cloud. The same cloud, right? That has been hanging around protecting Moses and the people since the burning bush. Here it is again, signaling that God is near and wants to be known, but can't be fully known face to face. So this, this cloud is telling them God is here. And also God is shielding them and, and, and meeting them kind of in their own capacity, in a sense, in a place that is often, I mean, confusing, disorienting, great cloud of, of unknowing, appearing in power for sure, but also as this mystery, mystery like not as unknowable, but endlessly knowable. And then comes this, this huge verse in, in, or two huge verses in the Old Testament, the Lord, Hashem, came down in a cloud. He stood with him there and proclaimed the name of, the, the name Lord, the name Hashem. It means the name Yahweh. It just doesn't write it. The Lord passed before him and, and proclaimed, Hashem, Hashem, the Lord, the Lord, a God compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in kindness and faithfulness, extending kindness to the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he does not remit all punishment, but visits the iniquity of parents upon children and children's children upon the third and fourth generations. In other words, he's not, he's not going to make it so you don't reap what you sow. You always reap what you sow. And this has ramifications for generations. 
In these two verses, it's really interesting. I, did not, I was not aware of this until this week, how central they are to the Jewish faith. Exodus 34, 6, and 7. They're huge verses. The Jewish people have these committed to, to um, memory. They recite them, the whole congregation. There are rules about there has to have to be 10 of you together, like in the synagogues, to, to actually say these out loud. They're treated with great reverence on like high holy days, beginnings of feasts. They recite this as the, the rabbis go and gather the Torah scroll from the tabernacle. It's like a ceremonially big deal. It's sometimes referred to as the 13 attributes of mercy. And there's kind of a fight over it, um, what, which ones they are and how you should line them up. But the rabbi um, Maimonides said that these aren't actually in, um, attributes of God inherently. They're attributes of God's activity. They're attributes of God's way. God's way of being with us. Remember, Moses had made these two requests. Show me your way that I may know you, and then show me your gl glory. And the rabbis say that, that God's mystery passing by him while he's hiding in the cave, that answers the second request. And these 13 attributes of mercy answer the first. They describe God's way, God's activity, God's way of being in the world. And that there are 13 is important. Um, if you remember, we talked about this, um, the, the number 12 can, um, connotes kind of proper order. 12 means something's rightly ordered. The number 13 connotes something has gone way above and beyond proper order, beyond what is expected. So, so God's actions here go beyond what one would expect. They're lavish in mercy. That's God's way. It's over the top. It's lavish in mercy. That's what is revealed here. And if you think about it, I mean, our entire gospel, the Christian faith, depends upon this being true. That means these two verses really important for us, too. Really quickly, I want to just, since it's probably foreign to us, look at the 13 attributes of mercy that are common in the Jewish faith. Um, this, a quick list of them, the, it, it says, the, um, Hashem, Hashem, the Lord, the Lord, shows compassion before a person sins, and grace after a person has sinned. The Lord is mighty in compassion to give all creatures according to their need, provide for humans and all creatures. The Lord is merciful um, that humankind may not be distressed, like trying to keep them from that, but is gracious if humankind is already in distress. The Lord is slow to anger, is generous in loving kindness. That word is hesed that we talked about. And if you remember in the gospel or in the book of Ruth, huge word in the Old Testament, generous in loving kindness in hesed and generous in truth, keeping kindness unto thousands, like not just a little bit, but moving out to all humanity, forgiving iniquity, forgiving transgressions and sin, and finally pardoning. This is God's way. And it is a way of like lavish, over-the-top mercy and compassion and grace. And so you can tell when God shows up in the world because things, these type of things begin to happen. And as we learn to embody this way of mercy, then we actually come to yada, to know God. Not just know about God. We participate in God's life, participate in life um, with God. God's way of being in the world becomes 
our way, as we follow God and as we kind of see God's back, the trail of that is the glory of God on display everywhere we look. Okay, back to the story. Next thing that happens is um, God renews the covenant with Israel, sort of renames most of the Ten Commandments and kind of expounds on how they should be observed. And then Moses, it says, is up on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, the last time he was on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights, he came home to find the little party with the golden calf, right? And so there's tension in the story, like what's going to happen? And so there's anticipation here as, as we hit the next part, which is this time when he climbs down, he notices everybody's looking at him all funny, like out of the corner of their eye and hiding their face from him. And, and the text says um, the reason is his face was, was Quran. It, it shone. It radiated. It was glowing, and it was freaking everybody out. And so Moses actually, nobody would treat him normal, so he actually had to put a veil over his face, kind of like the veil in the tabernacle that we read about a couple weeks ago. And this just kept happening. Anytime Moses went in to speak with God, he would unveil his face, and then his face would, like, charge up or something. I don't know. And then when he would leave, it would be glowing. And he would come back to the people with the veil off of his face so they could see, oh, he's met with God. It was kind of authenticating to his words. And then after he spoke, kind of as, as the priest, he would, he would hide his face again, and they could just treat him like normal Moses. And after a while, the people began really relying on this. If they couldn't see God directly then they could see God's glory shining through Moses, reflected through the face of Moses. God had given them someone they could look to and listen to who could mediate God's presence to the people. And then over the chapters after that, the, really the rest of the book of Exodus, they get busy following God's instructions. It's this long, detailed account of how they built the tabernacle finally. And then the cloud comes to rest over it, fills the whole place with the glory of God. And really, that's kind of where the, the book of Exodus ends. But the story of Exodus, um, of God leading God's people out of bondage, it keeps going. It's continued. In fact, years later, hundreds of years later, the prophet Elijah went to Sinai, climbed, climbed the very same mountain, and the Lord told him to stand in the mouth of a cave, same cave, because he was going to go past him as well. And you know the story, a powerful wind tore the mountain at his feet, and an earthquake shook the trees, and a fire ripped through the valley, valley before him. But um, the Lord was not in those things. The Lord appeared in the silence, like a whisper. And 1 Kings 19 says that when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face, he veiled his face like, like Moses. Same mountain, same, same cave, same God, same response. And about a thousand years after that, Jesus was born. And he began his ministry and his teaching. He climbed a mountain of his own to meet with God. And who shows up at the top of the mountain but Moses and also Elijah. And then the cloud shows up too. 
Only Jesus didn't have to hide in a cave. He just began to glow and shine, his face radiant with God's glory. Only it wasn't reflecting off of something. It seemed to be shining through him. And Moses and Elijah and, and Jesus, they begin, you know, having a conversation, which is, I guess, what you do when everything's all lit up. And the topic of their discussion was his departure, his exodus. And then the disciples who've been sleeping through the whole thing, they wake up and they, it says they beheld his glory, kavod. And, and then Peter says, we should make some tents so we can stay here, only the word is tabernacle. And the glory of the Lord is just like emanating from Jesus. And he's like, I think we're good. No tabernacle needed. It's, it's happening. So Christ here is, is revealing to us God's nature fully completely God's way um, as a way of mercy it gets revealed in, in Christ's whole life and so many things from Moses' story end up showing up in Jesus' story it's an exodus, it's a new exodus, you think about things like um, his, his, the family's escape to Egypt and then led out of Egypt, Jesus running to Egypt both of them, by the way, um, running from homicidal leaders, Herod killing the, the innocents, um, Pharaoh doing the same thing. Um, you've got both of them going up on the mountain to come down with a law, um, Moses the Ten Commandments, and Jesus saying, I have a new command for you, the command of, to love one another, right? There's just, and that's just a drop in the bucket. There's so many of these things that, that make Jesus part of this story of Exodus, but taking it to this new place, this new revelation of God that we can actually see and, and that doesn't overwhelm us. Decades after his death, the writer of Hebrews wrote about this stuff. The, the temple as kind of the new tabernacle, the ark, the cloud that filled the Holy of Holies, the veil that stood between God's presence and people. And he said, but when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with human hands. We should think of the moment that he died and the, and the veil in the, in the temple was ripped open. And the spirit of God just broke free from the temple. And now it's just on the loose in the world. And anyone who will take up their cross and follow the one who leads can experience the glory of God sometimes personally and privately, most of the time through an encounter with some other and these relationships, especially relationships that proceed in the way of mercy. And now you and I are actually asked to believe that any place can become Mount Sinai. Any place. We live in a world where God's glory is on the loose. And the light of God's presence can break through at any moment and shine on you and me, shine on us and light us up like Christmas trees. And then we go out with, Paul says, unveiled faces. And the world can see God shining through us if we walk in the way of mercy. Paul said it this way, and this is how we're going to close. I'm just going to read a little passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And it kind of illustrates... Uh, this continuation of the story of Exodus and where it lands then for, for you and I as Christians. And um, I do this in part because it's so beautiful. Um, 
and because it draws in so much of our story and kind of sums up where we've been in Exodus. But also, to illustrate, this is why we study the Old Testament so much. Why we spend so much time trying to, to have it shape our imagination. Because if we do, when we start reading the New Testament, it's everywhere. I mean, the way you read the Gospels now and Paul, all the time you're going to be seeing these symbols of Exodus because they just permeate the whole story. This is a reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm reading from the message version because it's more poetic. The government of death, its constitution chiseled on stone tablets, had a dazzling inaugural. Moses' face as he delivered the tablet was so bright that day, even though it would fade soon enough, that the people of Israel could no more look right at him than stare into the sun. How much more dazzling then the government of the living spirit? If the government of condemnation was impressive, how about this government of affirmation? Bright as that old government was, it would look downright dull alongside this new one. If that makeshift arrangement impressed us, how much more this brightly shining government installed for eternity by government, he's, he's saying kingdom of God. Unlike Moses, we have nothing to hide. Everything is out in the open with us. He wore a veil so the children of Israel wouldn't notice that the glory was fading away, and they didn't notice. They didn't notice it then, and they don't notice it now. Don't notice that there's nothing left behind that veil. Only Christ can get rid of the veil so they can see for themselves that there is nothing there. God removes the veil, and there they are face to face, they suddenly recognize that God is a living, personal presence, not a piece of chiseled stone. And when God is personally present, a living spirit, that old constricting legislation is recognized as obsolete. And we are free of it, all of us. Nothing between us and God our faces shining with the brightness of his face. And so we are transfigured, much like the Messiah, our lives gradually becoming brighter and more beautiful as God enters our lives and we become like him. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for the story of Exodus, for all these faithful people and even unfaithful ones for the Hebrew people who protected it poured over it mining it for symbols of your presence in the world naming you as the Lord recognizing you in the way of mercy going atop hills, hiding in caves, straining to get near to you, as we do. And then Christ just breaking the whole thing open. At once, the, the fullest revelation of you, so that if we want to know what you're like, God, we just can look at him. And at the same time, full of mercy, just saying, come out into the open. 
Let me shine on you and you can shine into the world. And, and this is what we want to be part of. We're grateful for the story of Exodus and the way it's intertwined through our whole New Testament and gospel. And pray as we move forward, um, headed toward the liturgical seasons, telling these stories about Christ, that we would see the Old Testament, see the Exodus story everywhere we look. I'm grateful for a chance to study and to be drawn into your story. We love you and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We invite you to stand and we're going to receive communion, which is always a sign of this new deal, this new covenant that we're a part of that reaches all the way back to Exodus. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and passed it to his friends and said, um, this is my body broken for you. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and, and they all shared the same cup. And he said, this cup is a new covenant, a new deal in my blood. He said, do this in remembrance of me. Every time you get together, eat the bread, drink the cup, take my life into your life. Remember who you are and then go shine in, into the world said, every time you get together, do this. And this is why we observe it and why we, we save it for right now at, the, at kind of the pinnacle of our service. And so we invite anyone who calls on the name of Christ to, to join us at the table. Let's um, bless the bread and the cup. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing on this table, the bread and the cup. May it be to us a means of your grace a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?